This is the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of, father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Elehud, Elehud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Christ. Thus there were fourteen generations in all, from David, from Abraham to David, and fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Christ. Now that's a weird place to start in your first sermon beginning a new church. And, 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 and as I thought about what we would be studying together, what we'd be teaching through together um, in the first season of life at this new thing that we call New City, um, I thought about a lot of different places to start. I thought maybe we should just start at the very beginning of the Bible at Genesis. You know, why not start there? That makes tons of sense. Or, or maybe we would do like a vision series where we would rally around what we're all about and who we are and what we think God is doing in us. That would make a lot of sense too. In fact, we're going to do that in August. But in this season right now, as we kind of are in our little origins as a church, as we move through the ebbs and flows of growth leading up to August, I decided that the best place for us to start when, our, when, we, when we think about what we're going to teach through, what we're going to read together in God's Word, the best place for us to start is with Jesus. Because who we are as New City Church is a collection of followers of Jesus. That's who we are first and foremost. And so what better place to start the teaching of a new church than to, to try to get to know Jesus for who he really is? And you might be thinking, you know, I know Jesus. I've been around church a long time. I've, I've read the Bible. Like, I, I know all about Jesus. Maybe a lot of you are not saying that. Maybe you're thinking, oh, man, that's awesome. But, but, but some of you, this is really familiar. Jesus is not a new thing to you. He's not something that you have um, thought about in a while, at least in terms of getting to know better. But in my experience as, as a church leader for, for almost a decade, uh, 
a lot of people that I run into who have been following Jesus for a long time know very little about him. They, they, they might know one side of the story. They might have like a, a certain perspective on who Jesus is and, and, and maybe it's missing a lot and, and maybe it's so that they can write off the things that they don't like about Jesus and maybe put him into a box that makes Jesus into exactly who they would want him to be or, or something like that. It doesn't really matter. The point is, is that we must, as followers of Jesus, continually go back to our rabbi to our teacher and get to know the one whom we follow, the one whom we worship, the one whom we love so much. And so what I am hoping to do in this next 25 weeks at New City Church is we're going to um, look at the gospel of Matthew, at least the first part of it, and we're going to take a look at who Jesus is in a um, refreshing and revitalizing way. And, and it's not that I or any of the folks who will be teaching in this series know more about Jesus than any other Bible teachers. It's not that we have the secret that other people are missing. That's not what we're saying at all. But what we want to do is we want to explore Jesus, our rabbi, together in a way that renews our love for him, renews our affections for him, and revitalizes our spirit as we follow him, gives us a new vision of what it means to be followers of Jesus. Now, what I didn't expect, or what I would not have ever told you in years prior, is that the first sermon that I would ever preach after planting a church would be over a list of names. I mean, you, you probably, if you watched me read through that, you probably like had a hard time sitting through it. It's not a great way to start a sermon. But this is much more than a list of names. This is much more than simply a genealogy, and we're going to talk about that. But before we get there, I want to ask a really important question, a foundational question. In fact, I think it may be the most foundational question that any human being can ask. And that is, where is this all headed? What, where is everything going? What is the point of the universe? What is the thing that everything else hangs on? What's the center? And I think this is the most important question, the most uh, foundational question, at least, that you can ask because everything else hangs on that question. The way that you live, the way that you function, the way that you view the world, all of that is going to come from the way that you answer that question. What's the center of the universe? What's the point of it all. And so what I am hoping to do in, in this message and in the following messages is to hopefully answer that question and get deeper and deeper and deeper into that answer. But today we're going to start with this list of names in the Gospel of Matthew, which is a first century biography of who Jesus was written by an eyewitness that we know as Matthew. And I'll just, I'll just say it in the front end. This genealogy is a work of art. You get to hang with me here because it's not just a list of names. It is the beginning or it's a retelling rather of the story. You, you might know, and if you don't, that's okay, but you might know that Matthew starts about three-fourths through 
your Bible. It's about like if you want to turn to the beginning of the Old Testament, Matthew's the, or the beginning of the New Testament, rather, Matthew's the beginning of the New Testament. If you want to get there, you basically are going to take your Bible and you're going to move three fourths of the way through and open it. And you're going to come pretty close to Matthew. And that's significant. Because there's been a story being written for, uh, for thousands of years. That, that there's, there's a whole history. There's a whole story that has been going on leading up to where we are picking up the story. And what Matthew is going to try to convince us of is that the point of the universe is Jesus. The center of the universe is Jesus. The point of that story is Jesus. But let's back up just a little bit, right? Let's talk about the universe and talk about story. We are human beings. We are story creatures. In fact, many psychologists would say that that's how we function. That's how we take in information, the data that we observe in the world, and that's how we process it. We tell ourselves stories. And so if the universe, if human history is a story, then like any other good story, it's got to have a climax. It's got to have a centerpiece. It's got to have an event or a person on which all things hang. Right, like in, in the Matrix movies, everything hangs in the balance on Neo, the one chosen, prophesied over um, uh, to, to end the war of the machines. Right, in the Lord of the Rings, everything hangs in the balance on, on one little hobbit named Frodo and a band of friends around him and that ring of power that Frodo has to get to the, the Mount of Doom and Mountain of Doom in Mordor. Or, or in Harry Potter, everything goes down to the boy who lived. Or in the great epic that is Space Jam, the first one, uh, everything, the whole cartoon world, the whole Looney Tune world depends on one basketball game between the Monstars and Michael Jordan. Every good story has a climax. Every good story is leading to something, some central person, hero, or event on which everything else depends. And like I said, we're joining the, this story, the real story of human history, that is the Bible, the real story of human history, we're joining it about three-fourths of the way through. And so to understand the part that we're picking up on, the, 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 the part about Jesus, to understand that, we've got to cover really quickly now the, the first three-fourths of the story. And, and like I said, I mentioned this, and I want to I pause and make sure that we clarify it. We believe that the Bible is the true story of the universe. We believe that this is where everything is heading, that if you want to know what the point of it all is, that this is the story that will give you that answer, that will tell you that fact. And, and so um, many of you might know how the Bible begins. It's a famous, uh, uh, famous verse, the first sentence in the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible actually starts, like any good story, with beauty and with um, uh, peace and with 
wholeness. God creates the sky and the land. He says, let there be light and there's light. He fills the sky with moon and stars and birds and and he fills the land with animals and plants that produce seed and, and reproduce themselves. And he fills the sea with fish and he creates humans at the very end on the sixth day at the kind of climax of the creation story. And he, and he looks at all of what he has created and God says that it is Good. It's the Hebrew word tov. And, and, and here's what that means. God, when he looks at his creation and says it is good, what he is not saying, what he's not doing is sitting back after a long, hard day's work and saying, man, that's really nice. Like I did a good job. That's not what he's doing. What he is saying when he says this creation that I have made is tov or it is good, what he's saying is that it is right. It is whole. It is as it should be. That's how the story opens. But look around. Turn on your TV. Get on whatever social media app or news outlet you can on your phone. The world is not good. The world is not tove. It's not whole. It's not as it should be. There are glimpses of good. There are good things that happen in the world. And there are beautiful things about it. But no one, I don't think, would say that it's ultimately good. I don't certainly don't think that anyone would say it's as it should be. Now, look inward. Stop looking around and look inside of you to your thoughts, to your motivations, to your attitudes to what really drives you at your core. I don't think anybody would say that they are exactly who they want to be. I don't think anyone would say that they are satisfied with who they are. And the reason why that you are not who you want to be, as awesome as I think you are, the reason why you are not who you want to be is because you are not who you should be. You are not who you were created to be. And the Bible has a word that it uses to explain this fact about the world and about us. And that word is sin. Sin is not just the bad things that you can do. It's that, but it's much broader than that. It's much deeper than that. Sin is the utter darkness and suffering and brokenness of our world. The best way that I can describe sin, the reality of sin in our world, is the very fact that the world is not what it should be and that you and I are not who we should be. Sin has utterly broken the world. And humanity, we are the ones who brought it here. You might know the story. You might not, and that's okay. But Adam and Eve, the first humans, when they were set up, the created in God's image to represent him on earth and to partner with God in this whole creation project and taking what God had created in the direction that he wanted it to go, that he, he committed to, to partner with them as his images, as his representatives on earth. But they decided that they didn't want to do what God wanted them to do, that they didn't want to take creation in the direction that he wanted it to go. They wanted to do their own thing. They wanted to um, uh, build their own kingdoms apart from God's kingdom, if you will. 
instead of ruling as his images under God's kingly, ultimate kingly rule, they decided they wanted to be their own king and they decided to build their own kingdom, which resulted in hell on earth, the utter brokenness, the utter darkness, sin, the fact that things are not as they should be or that you and I are not who we should be. And you would think, watching this story, reading this story, whatever it is, you would think that God, almighty God, who can do anything that he wants, after creating humans to partner with him in this project, after they have utterly failed, would just abandon them and find a new way to accomplish what he's trying to accomplish. That's what I would do. That's probably what you would do. But that's not what God does. God doesn't do away with humans and find a new way to continue his project. God doubles down on his commitment to partner with humanity. And in fact, he elects or he chooses a few to partner with him in restoring humanity to who he created them to be. And this story basically starts with a man named Abraham. You might remember that from the genealogy that I read, um, one of the first names listed, Abraham. And, and, and what Abraham is, is he's just some guy who God spoke to and appeared to and, and said, hey, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to make it possible for you and your wife to have kids and then for those kids to have kids and for those kids to have kids and those kids to have kids until your little family has become a whole nation of people. And I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you great, but not just for the sake of it. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you great so that you can be a blessing to all the other nations of the world. And this is the beginning of God's project of restoring the world back to what it was created to be. And he partners with Abraham, and Abraham becomes the nation that we know as Israel. And the story of the Bible, the story of the Hebrew Bible, and, and what we know as the Old Testament, that first three-fourths of the Bible, um, is the story of God partnering with Israel to continue that project of restoring creation back to the what, what God intended it to be. But the story is filled with failure on Israel's part. God never fails. God continues to do exactly what he said he would do. He continues to keep his end of the bargain. And Israel just fails miserably after miserable failure after miserable failure. But God continues to partner with those humans. Eventually, in the story of Israel, Israel establishes a monarchy and they, they set themselves set for, up for themselves a king. And the most famous king that they had is a man named David. Now, David um, is a special king for many reasons, but in particular, he's a special king because he's the king whom God promised a kingly line that would eventually establish God's kingdom on earth forever. And what we mean by that is that God promised David that he would have a son who would be king, and then they would have a son who would be king, and they would have a son who would be king, on and on and on until eventually a hero savior king 
what the Hebrew Bible would call a mess, the Messiah, or what the New Testament in Greek calls the Christ. We read that word several times in the genealogy. That there would come a savior king, a Messiah, a Christ, one day who would be king and he would be the king who would establish God's kingdom forever on earth, accomplish that mission of restoration. And so you've got the creation, you've got the, the introduction of that brokenness, that sin, you've got God partnering with Abraham, making him into a great nation, and that nation establishing a kingdom, and that King David, who has that promise from God to, ha- to, be the, the, uh, to have a family line, a kingly line that eventually leads to the Savior King, to the hero of the story, to the Messiah, to the Christ, and everything's just looking great until it doesn't anymore. Israel, Israel's kings begin to fail and they begin to get worse and they get to begin to get worse and worse and worse. And then something horrible happens. The kingdom that God had set up on earth, the nation whom he had chosen to use in this restoration project of all of creation is defeated. Because of their sin, because of their failure to keep up their end of the bargain, their failure to be who God wanted them to be, another nation, a, a powerhouse at that time in the world, Babylon comes and flattens the capital city, Jerusalem, burns the temple where God's presence was with his people and everything um, is destroyed and all of God's people, the nation of Israel, are exiled to Babylon. You heard that mentioned in the genealogy. And here's the thing. That's the end of the story. That's the way the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, that's the way it ends. And you got to think about this. This is crazy, right? Like everything starts off really well, like all good stories, things start off really well, but then enter the conflict, enter the the, the problem, right? And, And sin enters in the world and the plot thickens, God resolves to, the, uh, to uh, uh, fix the problem, to, to, to spend a whole story, spend the whole rest of the movie, if you will, um, uh, figuring out how to resolve the issue that was introduced at the beginning. And, and, and he, there's a whole band of characters, there's a whole list of, of kind of many heroes and, and different people involved and everything is going really well. It kind of climbs that hill, if you will, towards the climax. Everything kind of builds and it builds and it builds and it builds and then it's all burned everything like just as the hero just as the the people in the story were about to resolve the problem just as things were looking as good as they could get everything is destroyed everything is ruined nothing happens nothing is resolved there is no resolution and then the screen cuts to black roll credits casting by God Almighty Abraham as himself, David as himself. Special thanks to the nation of Israel and all surrounding nations for providing the extras. And and you're watching this movie, you're watching this show, and and you're thinking, no, 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 that's not how it's supposed to end. That's not how stories are supposed to end. Where's the resolution? Where's the solution? Like, where's where's the happy ending? Where's, Where's the hero? And then you notice... In the bottom of your Netflix screen, the countdown to the next episode. 
five, four, three, two, one. Enter Jesus Christ. And that's where Matthew begins this ancient biography of the Christ, of the Messiah, of Jesus. That's where we're picking up the story. And like I mentioned earlier, this genealogy is a work of art. If I had time, I could tell you about several different things that Matthew subtly and beautifully does in this, on the surface, looks like a list of names, but below the surface is just a literary masterpiece. It's crazy. I don't have the time, but if I, if I had the time, I could tell you about how this is not a, a normal genealogy. It probably most obviously in the fact that it includes four women, not including Mary at the end. It includes four women. And and genealogies, especially kingly genealogies, didn't tend to include women in the ancient world. And so that's not normal. But also, if it's a genealogy about the nation of Israel and about the story that we just retold, Israel's got some matriarchs. He's got some women in there. Sarah, Abraham's wife, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, Leah and Rachel, Isaac's sons, Jacob's wife. Like these are, these are women who all of Israel would have seen as their matriarchs, but they're not the women that are included in this genealogy. The women who are included in this genealogy are a woman named Tamar, who uh, tricked her husband, or tr- sorry, tricked her father-in-law rather, when her husband died, tricked her hu- father-in-law into sleeping with her so that she could produce an heir. Like it's a pretty crazy story in Genesis, um, that story. I wouldn't recommend going and reading that with your kid. Um, uh, and so you've got Tamar, but then also you've got uh, uh, Rahab, who is a Canaanite uh, uh, prostitute in the city of Jericho. And um, uh, so she's not an Israelite. She's not Jewish. Um, She's not one of the people of God, so to speak. And she's a prostitute. And and then you've got Ruth, who was kind of seen as a um, a, a hero. You've got the book named after her in the Old Testament and stuff, but she's got that weird stuff going on with her boyfriend, Boaz. Um, There's a scene, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go and read the the book of Ruth. Um, and, And she's also not an Israelite. She's a Moabite, and, and, and so she's not one of the people of God, and she's kind of a woman that's got a little bit of a um, weird reputation now. And then the last one that's mentioned is, is what Matthew calls the wife of Uriah, but that is somebody who you may have heard this name before. I don't know. Um, we, we know her as Bathsheba. This is the woman who David sees on a rooftop and then basically sexually assaults her, um, and, and those are the four women. Those are the four women that are included in this genealogy, not women that you would normally want to include in a kingly genealogy. Like all of them, whether they be the perpetrator or the victim, all of them have some sort of sexual stain on their reputation. But Matthew chooses to include them anyway. Maybe in this kind of subtle, beautiful way, Matthew is trying to tell us that God can use anybody, whether they be a part of his quote unquote people or not, whether they be perfect or whether they be um, just very far from perfect. God can use anybody. Maybe. Maybe that's what Matthew's telling me. We don't have time to talk about that. We could, but I don't have time to tell you about that. And if I had time, I would tell you about the numbers 
that are used in uh, in this genealogy. You may have noticed as we were reading that kind of uh, there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 between David and the exile, and 14 between the exile and the Christ, Jesus. Um, And you probably wonder, like, man, that's got to be significant. That seems really important. Um, And what would that mean? Well, actually, in Hebrew, there are no numbers in most ancient languages. There are no numbers. You used letters as numbers. So if a letter was the first letter in the alphabet, it would be one. If it was the second letter in the alphabet, it would be two, and so on. Well, it just so happens that David's name is spelled with three Hebrew letters, the fourth letter, the sixth letter, and then again, the fourth letter. If you add those up, what do you get? Four plus six equals 10, plus four equals 14. It's as if Matthew, again, very subtly but beautifully, is trying to drill down deep the fact that Jesus is that king in the line of David that was promised. But we don't have time to talk about that. If we had time, I could could tell you about how Matthew has actually changed the names in the original language in Greek. He's changed the names of two of the kings listed between the exile and the Messiah, the, the Christ. And in, 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 uh, we, we, uh, in Greek, or I'm sorry, their real names are Ahaz and Amon. Um, in fact, that's what I read in the in, in NIV translation of the Bible. They they listen to them as Ahaz and Amon, but in the original Greek, it's actually Asaph and Amos. Now, the real kings in history are Ahaz and Amon, and they were terrible kings, but that's not why actually Matthew has changed their name. What Matthew has done is he's taken each name, Ahaz and Amon, and he has switched or, or changed one letter in the original language to make Ahaz Asaph and Amon Amos. Now Asaph wrote a big chunk of the Psalms in the book of Psalms in Psalms in the Old Testament. And and most most uh, specifically Ahaz um, sorry uh, Asaph wrote some of the Psalms that predict the Messiah. And and Amos Amos was a prophet who also prophesied about the coming of a Messiah. It's almost as if Matthew is trying to to let us in on the fact that the whole part of the Hebrew Bible, what they would have called the Torah, the first five books, what they would have called the prophets, including Amos and all the other prophets, and what they would have called the writings, which included the Psalms, Ahaz, all of that was all pointing to this moment right here, the coming of Jesus. But we don't have time to talk about that. There's also one other thing that we don't have n- enough time to talk about, but you, you might have, uh, r- you might remember that there's 14 generations between the exile and uh, the coming of the Messiah, but there's actually only 13 men who are called fathers, right? You've got so-and-so was father of so-and-so, so-and-so was father of so-and-so, so-and-so was father of so-and-so. But when you get to Joseph, Joseph You're expecting to hear Joseph, the father of Jesus, but that's not what it says. It says Joseph, the husband of Mary. Why is Joseph not called the father of Jesus? Maybe, maybe really subtly, or or maybe not even so subtly, but in a way that's just glaring, a way that's just right there in front of you. Matthew is wanting you to ask the question, wait, hold on. Why is Joseph not called the father of Jesus? If Joseph is not the father of Jesus, then who is the father? We'll get to that next week. 
There's all kinds of things in this genealogy that is not just a list of names. It is a literary masterpiece that is telling a story. And the story is that this is the point of it all. This is the climax. This is that event in the story. This is the center of the universe. And it's not an event. It's not a, 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 a thing that happens. It's a person. We're here. He's here. The hero of our story is here. And it is Jesus. There's one thing that I want to spend a little bit more time on talking about in this genealogy. Um, and it's actually that first sentence, the first sentence that we read. And we read it as this. It said, the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ. Now, there's something to be pointed out about what Matthew is doing in that phrase, in that sentence. It's the first sentence of his ancient biography of Jesus. And many scholars would argue that it is kind of a title, at least for this section of Matthew. It's kind of, it functions as a title. And, um, and, and we read it as the book of the genealogy of Jesus. But actually, in the Greek, the word that is used for genealogy is the word Genesis, like as in the first book of the Bible. And he actually repeats this word later on in verse 18. We'll get to that next week. Um, but in, in, this, in this sentence, in this first sentence of his um, biography of Jesus, of his gospel of Jesus, what Matthew does is, is he says, this is the book of the Genesis of Jesus, the Christ. Now, why would he say that? Why would he do that? It's certainly intentional. It's certainly meant to, to, to tell us something. Why would Matthew do that? Well, actually, the reason why we call the first book of the Bible Genesis is not because an ancient author like had a cover page that said Genesis and like a subtitle, the creation of the heavens of the earth, something like that by, you know, whatever. Like that's not, that's not how it worked back then. Um, we named that book Genesis um, because of two sentences that are included in uh, the first part of that book that include that word Genesis, the first of which is in kind of the second story of creation, the one where Adam and Eve are um, included. Um, and that is, you know, so these are the generations is probably what your translation says. But what it says is this is the genesis of the creation of the heavens and the earth. Um, and then in chapter five of Genesis, after all the story of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, their sons and, and all this stuff leading up to the flood narrative, um, there is a kind of a pause in the narrative that goes through the genealogy of Adam, the first human, that one who failed. And, and it actually says the book of the Genesis of Adam. That's Genesis 5.1. The book of the Genesis of Adam. It's verbatim the same as Matthew 1.1. And so could it be, could it be that Matthew is intentionally copying the exact phrasing, the exact 
wording of the, the genealogy of Adam to say that this is the beginning. This is the new beginning. In the same way that Adam um, was uh, the kind of the first human, the beginning of all things, and, and he's the one who utterly failed. That Adam who, who was created in the image of God, but failed to represent God in the way that he was created to, that failed to partner with God in, the, in, in what God was calling him to, and the one who introduced all of this brokenness and all of this suffering and darkness, this sin into the world, that Adam, is it possible that Matthew is saying that this is a new beginning? This is a new Genesis. This is a new start for creation, and his name is Jesus. Could it be? I think it is. And here's what that means for you and me. First, it means that Jesus is the center of the universe. He is the point of it all. Not me and not you. And this is actually a relief. Like as much as I love to be the center of things, as much as I like to function like I'm number one and like everything revolves around me, it is actually a huge relief to me that I am not actually the center of the universe. Because this world cannot depend on me. I cannot make this world what it ought to be. I cannot resolve the problem. I cannot be the hero of the story. I can do some things. I can do my part, but I cannot bring the world that God wants to come to this earth. I cannot fix the brokenness. I can't do it. And listen, I so desperately want that world. I so desperately want a world where there is no war, where there is no violence, where there is no killing, where there is no disease, where there is no uh, um, uh, oppression, where sex trafficking is not a thing, where pornography is not a thing, where political outrage and racism are no longer things. Like, I, I, I want that world so badly, but I can't bring it. I can't bring it. But Jesus can. Jesus can bring that world. Jesus is bringing that world. And one day Jesus finally will bring that world. Jesus is the new Genesis. Jesus is the new creation. He is the one who has come to restore all things to the way God created it. And if Jesus is a new beginning for all creation, Jesus is also a new beginning for you and me. Look inward again. If you were like me and you examine your motivations, your thoughts, what drives you at your core, you are not satisfied with who you are. You are not who you want to be. And as we've already talked about, that's because you are not who you ought to be. You are not who you were created to be. And Jesus' offer to you is the new beginning. It's to be recreated. It's to be made new. 
And those of us who have been following Jesus for a long time can see that in our lives, whether your story is that you were under a bridge shooting up drugs and you were um, just at your like rock bottom and God met you there and you saw revival and now you are just the most faithful follower of Jesus to ever walk this earth or your story is that you grew up in a Christian home in church and that you you don't even remember not following Jesus, but you've just kind of steadily and faithfully, though imperfectly, become more like Jesus as you have grown. Whichever is your story or somewhere in the middle, you know that you were doomed without Jesus, that you are not who you ought to be without Jesus. But because of Jesus, you have been given a new beginning. You have been recreated. You are what the Bible calls a new creation. And you are continually, though imperfectly, but continually being formed into the image of Jesus, which is the Bible's way of saying that you are continually being recreated into who God created you to be. Jesus is not just the new beginning for all of creation. He's the new beginning for you. And if you are not a follower of Jesus, if you have not been transformed by the hero of the story, by the Messiah, by the Christ, you are not a follower of Jesus, we want you to know that the offer of transformation, that offer of new beginning is for you. And we want to talk to you about that. We want to get to know you. If you're watching this video somewhere, like find a way to get a hold of us so that we can introduce you to the hero of the story of the universe, the hero, the climax, the center of everything, the one who can offer the new beginning, the one who can resolve the issue, resolve the problem. We want to introduce you to him. The offer of transformation is on the table for you. The offer of new beginning is on the table for you. And not only that, Jesus is the new beginning. He's the new genesis. He's the new creation for the world and for us but he has graciously invited us to participate in the bringing of that new creation. And that's what we want to be as New City Church. We want to join God in seeing his kingdom come, which is another way of saying seeing that new creation come in Austin and around the world as it is in heaven. And so my prayer for us is that we would become that people that we would be a people transformed by Jesus, that we would be a people created anew by Jesus who are ready to participate in the new creation that he is bringing to this world. Let me pray that that would happen. Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for arriving on the scene. Thank you for being the climax of the story. Thank you for being the hero, the one that we have been waiting for. Thank you for being the new creation, the new beginning. And I pray that you would help us as New City Church, that we would be a people who accept your invitation to be transformed, accept your invitation to be recreated, to be made new, and that we would be a people who accept your invitation to participate in the bringing of that new creation in our city, in Austin, 
and around the world. And I pray for anyone watching this, I pray that that you would continually make them into the image of Jesus. As In other words, that you would help them to become who you created them to be. And if that needs to start by you just initially being their new beginning, then them starting a relationship with you, them starting that, that discipleship with you, the starting of following you, Father, I pray that, that, would, that they would do that. And if that we can be of help at all to them doing that, Father, I, I pray that you would make that happen. And Father, for those who are followers of Jesus, those who um, uh, have been transformed with, by you and are being transformed by you, I pray that you would continue to make them who you created them to be and that you would help them to participate in the bringing of that new creation to all of the world. Jesus, thank you for coming. And I pray all this in your name. Amen.